0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the bi-weekly advice focused monkeys to workings beetles. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler, and June, I'm going to hit you with a little bit of weird musical trivia. Oh. Did you know that Jimi Hendrix once opened for the Monkees? Oh my God, no. <laughs> Can you imagine being at that concert?
1: You see Jimi <laughs> Hendrix and then and then the Monkees? You know, one of my best friends who uh, is not famous as a musician, his band once opened for you too.
2: Really? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So we could talk about opening acts all day, or instead we could maybe discuss a creative problem and give some advice. So what do you want to talk about today?
1: So a little context about what I want to talk about today. I hear a lot about how there are two modes of experiencing the world. You can either be creating or consuming. And, you know, I don't have much of a disagreement with that, but I am interested today in the kind of Consuming that we do in the service of creation. I became interested in this topic in a recent working interview when mystery writer Ellen Hart told me that the first mystery she wrote, it just didn't work. So she decided to break down a book by one of her favorite writers in the genre, P.D. James, and that helped her to figure out the structure and the pacing of the first book that she did get published. And I also thought about how you watch movies when you were writing your book, The Method. So I wanted to dig deeper into how exactly creative people consume when they're trying to create better. First, I guess I'm curious if you've done that kind of stripping down of a piece of work to the studs exercise that Ellen talked about. And if so, how did you approach it?
2: Oh, yeah, totally. a lot of what I learned in grad school that was the most helpful was learning how to do that. Mm. I had a teacher, the great novelist and teacher Charles Baxter, who was very focused on this idea of descriptive criticism, where, you know, before you gave feedback on someone's work or when you're reading a novel or whatever it is, you try to just break down okay, what is this work of art actually doing? And then, how does it go about doing that? What are the formal properties by which it does that and stuff like that? That's been enormously helpful for me as a teacher, as a critic, as a reader, just getting the reps of doing that, you know, so that it could become a habit that you can just kind of slip into on command. Yeah. As longtime listeners of working will know, I also would go further than that and outline essays or chapters of books, you know, like Ellen Hart did, right? What is this essay doing? Okay, it starts with a personal anecdote that is two paragraphs long. Then it does this thing. It segues here. At paragraph seven, there's a double paragraph break, right? And the most useful thing is to then try to actually imitate that structure. I'm going to write an essay about this. It's going to have the exact structure that this one has and go from there. And I would even do that with diagramming people's sentences to try Mm -hmm. to learn how their sentences worked. All of that is enormously helpful. You know, when I was in Spain on my honeymoon, I went to the Picasso Museum that's in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that museum is, first of all, every 10 feet in Spain, there's a Picasso Museum, right? But in Barcelona, it is only dedicated to the work he did in Barcelona, which is only at the beginning and end of his life. And the stuff at the beginning of his life is all these, like, even though he's a teenager, they're brilliant, but these imitations of other artists, Mm -hmm. that's all he's doing is imitating, sometimes imitating exact paintings, but often doing things in the style of other artists artist to figure out how it works. And I think every artist does that whether they realize it or not. And if you can be more self-conscious about it, you'll grow as an artist. That said, there's another way to do it, which I'm doing right now that I want to talk about, which is what I might call osmosis. So I'm writing a book right now about the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. And my editor and I talk about it as a military history of the early culture war, because politics is war by other means, right? Mm. So now that I've called it that, now that the press release announcing the book sale calls it that, (laughs) I was like, I should really go read a bunch more military history than I already have. So you know, while I walk Chile, I'm listening to military histories, just to try to understand how does it work? When am I zoning out and just looking at what my dog is doing or mm-hmm. thinking about my day. When does it work well? When are they summarizing a battle versus giving me the blow by blow of a battle and why? And that's been a really interesting process. I'm not being as schematic about it as I used to, but I can tell that it's getting in there somewhere into the hindbrain.
1: First of all, I am in love with the idea of your next book as a military history of the culture wars. Uh, that's just great. I've done one of the things you outlined, I've never gotten nitty gritty, even though I have I say I want to, but I don't know that I ever have. And, and I, maybe when I'm done with my revisions, I'm going to try and take that on. But I've definitely repeatedly kind of been reading something or listening to something and just thought, oh, that was great. How did they do that? But I've only ever kind of done it in that way of Paying close attention, trying to be intentional, trying to yeah. listen or read in a way. But I've never like actually done the diagramming. And one day I will. One day I will. Now, I'm trying to be systematic about the different kinds of creative spins on consumption. And there's also when you were just watching for watching's sake, that is, you are not in explicit research mode. Right. And all of a sudden something strikes you is a line in a book or a scene in a movie that sparks a thought. What do you do then? Do you have a note taking protocol for occasions like that?
2: Well crap. Now you're making me think I should have
1: a protocol. You gotta um, have a protocol. You know,
2: if I'm just reading or seeing art for pleasure. I definitely probably should do more of writing down things that strike me. Although, you know, if you're seeing a movie in the movie theater, you're yeah, not going to write it down right. or whatever. Yeah. I do sometimes underline in books I read for pleasure sometimes mm. or more often I fold down a page and then later on I'll go back and be like, oh, that's interesting. What was it on this page I was drawn to? Mm. What I do sometimes do, though, is I try to kind of like, you know, if I'm watching a I don't know, a movie in the movie theater. And there's something in there that strikes me. I'll try to hold on to it. And I'll see like, well, did I hold on to it? Because if I didn't hold on to it, it wasn't that important, right? And if I did hold on to it, then it was. I can see by the look on your face, it's like agonizing to you that I'm saying it this way. But what's your way of doing
1: it? My protocol. So you will not be surprised to hear that I do indeed have a very specific workflow. So I use a service called Readwise to import notes or highlights from Kindle books. But also I import notes and highlights from physical books into that same app by a slightly more laborious process involving a camera or camera phone. And then I process those notes, which for me means writing a sentence or two about why I marked it, what idea did it spark? And I might add a tag if it's a concept I think I will return to. And then I put those notes in a program called Obsidian, and they are searchable and linkable there. So if I'm thinking of a topic down the road, I can search and be reminded of whatever thought I was having however long ago. I do that sparingly, though, because... You know, the world is too big. And also, I recently read a book where I could tell this is just someone's, like, Kindle notes, and it was just execrable. So uh, that was a very good reminder, like, do this sparingly. You know, you don't need to just link every thought that you ever had. But, you know, I realize I might be sounding a little bit smug as I describe this process because I'm currently in the kind of first revision process, and I did a lot of cutting, many thousands of words, and I also wrote some new stuff. And on more than one occasion, I thought of something just very fleetingly that I'd written about, or but not used, or I'd read about it. And I was able to find the thing that I was thinking about immediately. Now, mm. I'm sure I could have found it without all that palaver, but it definitely would have taken longer. Also, the fact that it worked just made me feel better about all that time that I've probably wasted. We're going to explore some other ways of creatively consuming after this break.
3: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
2: Hey, listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch with us and share your advice or problems for that matter. You can email us at working at or even better, call us and leave a message at 304 933 9675. That's 304 933
1: WORK. And we're back. Isaac, I will always remember your anecdote about how when you were writing the method during the deepest days of the COVID lockdown and you were staying with your wife's family, your mother-in-law would see you watching movies in the afternoon and think that you were just slacking off when in fact you were watching for the book. So I'm curious, when you're in that research mode, like how was your way of watching different? What were you looking for, say, when you're watching a movie?
2: Well, so that was very specifically a book about acting and the history of acting. So I'm really looking at the performances there. You know, what is the actor doing moment to moment with their voices and their bodies? What's the meaning created by those choices? How is this stylistically fitting into what's happened just before or what's going on at that time or, or whatever? So, you know, like, I don't know. I'm just gonna pick a random movie that I didn't talk about in the book. What makes Paul Newman's performance in HUD different from those of his peers, you wow. know, uh, yeah. in the method world who are making movies at the same time. What what is the essence of a Paul Newman performance? What's the essence of a Warren Beatty performance, you know? Mm. Now, I'm not going moment to moment through the whole movie, right? Because yeah. then it would take days to watch a single film, but that is that's really what I'm thinking about.
1: Wow, I would love to read those notes. You should publish those one day. <laughs> and just to play the process queen one more time, you said, you know, you would make those notes. How did you record What you observed, you know, how did you find the observation you'd made about Dustin Hoffman while you were watching The Graduate months after the fact?
2: First of all, I actually have the notes file on my Google Drive. So let me see if I can find something to read about it. So... This is an example. Uh, since you asked to read the notes, I'll read a little bit of this. This oh is um, one of the early ones I wrote, I watched, was the John Garfield movie, Four Daughters, which is he, John Garfield is the first Method movie star. This is his film debut. And so I'll just read you some of what I wrote. Four Daughters, director Michael Curtiz. Oh, Casablanca, 1942! exclamation 1938, Warner Brothers. And then a breakdown of the characters as they're introduced, right? What was Warner Brothers at this point? What is the context Garfield is walking into? Opening shot equals cherry blossoms in a yard, lace curtains, a pastoral romantic feeling as the father conducts his four daughters, piano, harp, violin, voice. Were the three women with the same last name in the cast actual sisters? The world established is almost hilariously over the top in its prelapsarian innocence. The daughters gazing beatifically at each other as they play instruments, their eyes literally twinkling. But it's a world almost immediately punctured by humor. Claude Rains is the father, exclamation point. <laughs> the father is in his daughter's formulation old fashioned. His response equals angrily mocking their desire for modernity in the form of jazz. But the modernity that's coming is a different acting technique and a Jewish suitor. Modernity is jazz in this movie, but there's another modern movement, and then et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. You know, so oh that's God. like the kind of stuff I'm writing down. You could tell I'm having fun with it too, yeah. right? Because part yeah, of totally. me is thinking about like, well, maybe someday one of these sentences is gonna yeah. exist in the book. So you should write it well. It's not always just a shorthand.
1: That's fantastic. When you said it was in a notes file, do you mean literally Apple Notes or?
2: For the method, it was Google Docs. Now I'm often doing it like on my phone notes, but it's often Google Docs like on an iPad while I'm watching on my computer or whatever whatever it is. So... It's a lot of pausing the movie to write down a time code and then the observation, particularly if it's a gesture, you know, or something that happens with the voice, it'll be like, you know, one hour, 29 minutes, Marlon Brando does this thing, Ugh. you know, but I will also say that I sometimes watch two movies a day, one by myself. And then after dinner, I would watch another one with my wife and my mother in law. And in those cases, I would have to sort of sheepishly be like, oh, could I just pause it to see the time code real quick? Those ones, the notes are much more fragmentary. It'll be yeah. like, revisit one hour, 15 minute, 30 seconds, Eva Marie Saint does cool thing. I mean, it's it's much Uh, more fragmented.
1: Well, uh, actually, that makes me think of another question. So you're a freelance magazine writer, among other Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. So how do you handle the ideas that bubble up in more of a sitting with your wife and mother-in-law kind of situation? Mm -hmm. Or when you're just going about your life as a person who spends a lot of time watching and thinking about art, or maybe sport, like, do you ever find yourself say watching a tennis match, having a thought that strikes you as something that would make a good piece and just saying, nah, I just want to enjoy this tournament. I I don't want to be handling edits when I could be enjoying the next round. Oh, I definitely do that. I mean,
2: particularly (laughs) like, you know, when you're in a really deep moment with a larger project like the book or a show or whatever it is, and I actually literally don't have the time to write
1: whatever it is. Like,
2: I'm just like, oh, I'm not pitching right now. Turn the pitch part of your brain off. That does sometimes happen. What I will often do in those instances, though, because I'm an extrovert, is (laughs) I'm going to text someone and be like, oh, isn't this an interesting thing? And we'll talk about it. Mm. And then, you know, that's usually enough to have a sort of lodge in my memory so that later on, it might, it might come back, right? It might come back that something I saw Venus Williams do in a match, you know, a year later, it might be like, Oh, she's doing that again. Let's write it, but maybe I'll pitch a piece about that. I will say, I just think, you know, if you could see my notes app on my phone, it's like dozens of entries, some of which are just the title is the entry, right? You know, I have a list, it's probably 200 books long now of any book someone ever recommends in a social setting. And they're like, oh, have you read this? I just write it down and someday maybe I'll read it. You know, (laughs) I have a long list of video games I want to buy. I have a long list of interesting quotes or thoughts. And, you know, because my system is chaotic, I will often find myself doing this thing where, you know, it's like... Don't forget to interview this person. And I'll write that down. And then later on, I'll be like, I should really interview that person. Let me go to my list of notes and write down to interview them. Be like, oh, I already have it on here that I should interview them. Six
1: times. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, it's a lot of note zapping, I would say. And occasionally emails that I write to myself. <laughs> um, wow. You're right, laughing. Well, this is like such torture for listeners who can't see what's going on. June Thomas looks right now like she's maybe about needs an appendectomy or something. She's just like, I can't believe the chaos of this man's mind and methods. And how did he even get anything done, let alone a book?
1: That is exactly my goodness. You're truly killing me softly. <laughs> We'll be back with some more sort of offenses to my ordered mind after the break.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Hey, listeners, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working overtime, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Don't be chaotic like me and write a random, you know, Apple Notes app thing that says, hey, maybe I should listen to working again. No, no, no. Subscribe. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to rate or review the show. It really does help us find new listeners. And if Overcast is your app of choice, please hit the star to recommend this episode to others.
1: OK, I admit, I thought I'd listed all the ways of consuming for creativity. But then I asked my girlfriend, who is herself an artist and writer, and she said that for her, taking classes also fills this role. And it's true, taking a class can expose you to new techniques and ideas and approaches in a very similar way to how, you know, walking through a gallery mm-hmm. or something like that might. What do you think? Are you a class taker?
2: I had an experience while working on The World Only Spins Forward, which is the book about angels in America that I co-wrote with Slate's own Dan Kois. Mm. Uh, I decided to take a class on the history of the Soviet Union because the end of the Soviet Union is very important to the play. I just felt like I didn't really understand the Soviet Union as well as Mm. I should. What I discovered is I am not a classroom student anymore. In the same way that like I am not a Chevy Nova, I'm a human being. Like it's just like <laughs> right, fundamentally right. not who I am. Yep. I can't deal with the authority dynamics, even in a continuing ed setting. I am a teacher myself. And so I'm very critical in my head of their pedagogical style. I get kind of close-minded. The teacher also wasn't that great and yeah. assigned like hundreds of pages of writing every oh. week to a continuing ed class of people who have full-time jobs. And I, I just disagreed with everything he was doing stylistically. I dropped it after two weeks. Oh so the classes I do take are fitness classes. Specifically, I take Pilates, classes right but that's like a totally different thing that's your body which I yeah. know nothing about yeah it's someone walking you through a thing I have a dream of maybe finally figuring out how to speak another or read a, a foreign language you know and so I would go back to a class for that yeah. but you know the education that I get now is from reading from talking to people from listening to podcasts from that's the kind of education rather than a formal classroom setting
1: I have to tell you that something very similar kind of happened to me a few years ago i joined a choir in brooklyn and i was driven absolutely mad by how the choir master or whatever the right term is talked to us like i would Mm. walk out of those sessions just mad as hell or i'd be mumbling under my breath like a crazy person because i just don't like being spoken to that way. And and like literally everybody else in the room was like, oh, they're all like that. That's no thing. They don't mean anything by it. That's just how they talk. But I could not handle it. And I, I also worry that a classroom situation would repeat that dynamic. So I don't think I'm going to be taking any classes right now. One final thought that I had for ways of consuming in service of creativity were artist dates, An artist date, which is a practice laid out by Julia Cameron in her book, The Artist's Way, which is when you kind of reward yourself by going to something every week on your own to something that you think is going to stimulate you artistically. It's going to excite you in some way. It's going to generate ideas. You are going specifically with that in mind. You're not going to go just to look at paintings, just to see a movie. You're going with a particular mindset. And I do feel that when I go to something with something in mind, wanting to have ideas or experiences, then I am more likely to have them. It's like how when you sit down to read something with a notebook and a pen beside you, you notice more than you did if you didn't have any writing implements. Is this something that you have experienced?
2: I think I've definitely experienced that. I just started a book this morning that I'm really loving, and it was sort of an impulse to get it and I'm like I should really have a pen with me because there's a lot going on in here that's interesting this is a work of fiction it's never going to help me write the kind of things that I write you know but it's just inspiring to be sharing space with that writer's mind I will say that there's sometimes, maybe it's because I am also a critic, where (laughs) I have the opposite. If I have a notebook, specifically there's like a mnemonic thing maybe that happens with the notebook, it triggers something. Sometimes there's a more critical and closed-minded part of my brain that springs into action and makes me less generous with the work in hand. Because the left part of my brain clicks in. That's a thing that anyone who does criticism ever, you have to guard against that. You have to figure out how to be as open-minded as possible. Even if you end up hating the thing, you can't go into it being like, I'm probably going to hate this, (laughs) you know? And I will say, I've had a few plays that I've gone to recently where I thought, you know what? I love that. I am not reviewing this because I can just enjoy it. Cause I know if I started to pick apart and think about it critically I would end up not liking it at the end of the day. But I got to just go have a grand old time watching this show, and that's good enough for me. So sometimes I try to actually be less intentional in a weird way. Go have the experience, and you know what? A thought's probably going to spark, and so I'm just going to pull out my phone and write uh, my 11,000th note app
1: (laughs) note to myself on it. Well, you know, as we come to the end of this conversation... I think something that I I believe I laughed at when you said it earlier, when you said, look, I try and hold on to it, but if it slips away from my steel trap of a brain, maybe that means it wasn't that important. And I, I wanted to rebel against that. But now I think I've come around to your position.
2: Where that really came from was, you know, I was a kid who interrupted class a lot with my observations as a, <laughs> as a, as a lower schooler, as you might imagine. Mm. And a teacher said, you know, raise your hand. You got to wait your turn. And I said, well, what if I forget the thing I was going to say? And she was like, then it wasn't important. It wasn't worth saying. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and that, re- you know, that really stuck with me from fourth grade or as you call it, 3.5th form or whatever. <laughs> and one thing I will say for myself I don't like to brag about a lot of things, but because this has nothing to do with me, I was just born with it or whatever. I have a very good memory. It's really good. And actually, sometimes I'm probably too reliant on it, Mm -hmm. but I do think that because I have a really good memory, I will forget it if it's not important. You know, My brain will just figure that out for me, and isn't it great that it did that? And I think that if you don't have a really great memory, there's probably more systems one might need. I will also say, I'm going to go to bat for you know, sometimes the misremembered thing <laughs> yeah. is where inspiration actually comes from. Yeah. You know, sometimes your brain gets something wrong and then you look it up and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And that's actually where the idea comes from. Tony Kushner has this early play called A Bright Room Called Day that's about the Weimar Republic. And it has this, I mean, what an amazing title, Yeah, A Bright Room Called Day. Where it came from was he was working on the play and he went to an exhibition about the work of Agnes DeMille, the choreographer. And he was looking at something and he heard the phrase come from like a video of her talking about a piece right a bright room called day and he's like that's such a great title i'm gonna write it down and he walked over to the piece and it turns out that what she said was a bridegroom called death (laughs) that was the name of the piece you know but his brain misheard it and this beautiful other title came out of it so those kinds of mistakes i think are useful
1: oh my god That is all the time we have for this episode. But let me leave you with one last piece of advice, listeners. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better, questions you'd like us to address, We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304 933 WORK.
2: I have my own piece of advice for you. I think you should sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. Really, I have your best interest at heart here, (laughs) but it does help support everything we do here at Working and keep the lights on. What you'll get for your money is full access behind the paywall at the mothership site, bonus exclusive episodes of shows like Slow Burn, which is currently in the middle of a all killer no filler season about uh, how Clarence Thomas became the man he is today. Big mood, little mood, all sorts of stuff like that. You'll be supporting what we do right here in working. And we would be ever so grateful if you'd sign up at slate.com slash working plus.
1: Thanks as always to producer Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of working. And in two weeks, we'll have another working overtime. Until then, get back to work.